Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and today we're talking to prominent Jewish leader and senior rabbi of Leo Beck Temple, Rabbi Ken Chasen. Rabbi Chasen is an outspoken advocate for social justice and community. His empathy level constantly astounds me, and his way with words is beautiful, which you'll get to hear in a minute. His writings have appeared in publications all over the world. He's active in interfaith leadership and human rights issues and inspires others to do the same, as well as to stay balanced, spiritually connected, and connected to others. He's also a musician, and his music's regularly heard in synagogues and schools around the world. Rabbi Chasen's here to give you tools to help you create community in your life, to be comfortable in your skin and truly see others for who they are and feel better about yourself right now. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Rabbi Ken Chasen. Thanks so much, Lawrence. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to see you too, virtually or anyway. I think the first question that is just going to naturally happen is, since you are the head of a large community at the temple, how are you maintaining community? Yeah, it's obviously a tremendous challenge under these one-of-a-kind circumstances. Uh, Nobody has any experience with this. Uh, It's not like you can uh, lean upon your elders. They haven't been through it either. Um, And so uh, there's been a lot of uh, invention and reinvention on the fly and a lot of trial and error. But at the end of the day, what I think we've discovered is uh, maybe even all the more so what synagogues, churches, uh, faith communities deliver in a moment like this is perhaps even more greatly needed even though people can't be together in person. And so we're watching as... Um, worship services, classes, uh, small group gatherings, uh, either for social or study purposes, or for the collaboration on social justice. All of this, if anything, is attracting more people, even though uh, some of what can be achieved is limited by the fact that we're not looking directly into each other's eyes, we're looking at each other on screens. But all of it is increased, both the con- the, the, the uh, quantity of content that we're delivering and circumstances and opportunities we're creating and the number of people who wish to participate. So there's a great hunger right now for creating community and for uh, breaking down this feeling of aloneness that quarantine creates. And how about you personally? How are you maintaining community for you? That's a great question. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think this, I face the same challenge everybody else does. I'm blessed in the sense you mentioned uh, my wife and my three kids. I'm blessed in the fact that uh, while my kids are mostly grown, they are at the moment all home. Uh, just the circumstance, my oldest graduated from Syracuse University in May. So he's home. He's 23. My middle one is 20. and He's a sophomore at Northwestern, but uh, he's now home in between quarters and uh, likely to remain home for a period of time. And our daughter is uh, a sophomore in high school. So right now we have a very full nest once again. And so I'm certainly advantaged in the sense that I have a robust house that frankly, if it weren't for the quarantine would be less robust. Without a doubt, we were had gotten used to a home that only had our daughter at home. And now uh, we're once again, the, the nest is completely full. So that's been a big part of it. But I have to say, I've been deeply renewed uh, again and again by the amount of outreach from members of the community that I serve and my broader community of colleagues and folks all over the country and all over the world who are hungry to connect. I'm finding that uh, folks are in some ways making an even greater commitment to 
let's make time for one another on the phone. Let's set up a Zoom gathering for the extended family. We're not seeing each other in person the way we're used to doing. We're not traveling for business the way we're used to doing. And yet there's a tremendous amount of intentional community creation that is uh, going on, I think, from that place of deep hunger. Uh, I guess that's true. I, we have had a Zoom family call every Sunday since March. We do yeah. not miss it. And we've seen and talked to each other every week more than we have our lives. I mean, exactly. Like, <laughs> well, we're missing seeing, we're missing being in each other's presence, but uh, I think there has been a deep commitment to replacing that as well as possible. And in some instances, it's been more than replacement. I think we've innovated ways of connecting with one another that I suspect will be sustained after the uh, pandemic has come and gone. Yeah, that's probably true. I read an op-ed, I think this week, of a professor at, I think she's at Northeastern, and she teaches her large classes and everything, and nobody sits in the front rows, and some people are inevitably asleep and everything. And she said she actually has more intimacy on Zoom because she would never see anyone's faces. And now exactly. she yeah. said there's students come for office hours and everything else. And she never had anyone come, but now it's just a virtual visit and she knows students more. And so they, things are changing. Definitely. Things are definitely changing. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we certainly hunger for a return to what normalcy looks and feels like interpersonally. And yet I do suspect that there have been some innovations that will, uh, that will be sustained. I mean, a good example in the line of work that I'm in, of course, I'm oftentimes helping people through times of grief. And it's been a heartbreak to watch families uh, being unable to convene with one another at the time of a loved one's death. And yet, one of the other things that we do is we convene the broader community for the purpose of Shiva, for the purpose of creating family and extended circles of friends gathering to bring comfort to the immediate circle of mourners. Usually that's done by coming over to a, a friend's or a family member's home. And whoever's able to gather in home is there. And obviously nothing can replace the hugs that take place there, the knowing glances that take place there. And yet I've been able to hold uh, some Shiva gatherings of that sort uh, via Zoom, where we're bringing together people from three continents at the same time. Uh, because of the possibility of what uh, electronic gathering enables. And those are folks who would have been excluded from participating. The folks on other continents and other time zones and other cities and states um, would have been excluded from gathering if uh, we were only in person. And I suspect what you're going to start to see is some mix of the two, where there's a way to participate in person and there's also a way to participate uh, virtually in a wide range of activities, whether it's classes at school or services of worship and uh, prayer communities or whatever the, the case may be. I was actually, that that's a good segue because I was going to ask you, there's so much death at this time. How are you as a rabbi able, able to console at this time? Yeah, it's really hard, uh, honestly, Lauren. The truth is there's a lot of heartache in not being able to uh, be directly with people in the way that they are counting upon it um, emotionally in a time like this. Um, I am able to officiate uh, funeral services. It's, it's been permitted during the pandemic, but only outdoors 
and only in very small groups. The, most of the mortuaries are permitting uh, as many as 10 people, but not more. And so you, what you're having is, I mean, the upside is, again, that has been the mother of invention too. And so oftentimes I'll, I'll meet with a family uh, by Zoom in preparing for a funeral and I'll say, you know, the downside obviously is you all would have been surrounded by hundreds of people bringing you support and comfort on this day. And it would have introduced a need for a greater formality to how we went about telling your loved one's story, who's going to be a speaker and deliver a eulogy and who won't. But since there's going to be 10 of you here and all of you knew the deceased with deep love and affection, perhaps instead of a more formal approach to how the story will get told, maybe we can create the kind of conditions where you all can speak to one another more spontaneously in love and recollecting stories and not feel as though there's that need for this one's going to speak and this one's not going to speak. And it can be a more organic celebration of a life and legacy. And so that's been, I would say, an upside that has come, but obviously the downside of not being able um, both to be with people in the aftermath of their loved one's death, but especially also um, in advance of their loved one's death. I'm so used to in my work, um, visiting someone at the hospital or in their home during their uh, their uh, final days and gathering with loved ones to uh, make blessings and to share love and uh, words of encouragement for uh, the person who's dying. We've done some of that by Zoom as well. It's obviously a lot harder for the person who's dying uh, to be connected via virtual means. And yet we've been able to do that on a few occasions, but there's nothing like making a circle around a loved one's bed and uh, telling them, you know, letting them hear the words they need to hear. Yeah, well, it, it's all, I guess, it's got to be hard. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, yeah. There's, there's been a lot of adaptation and uh, I think we've gotten by as well as possible, but I would be lying if I didn't say that there's an added layer to the losses that are taking place during this period of time. Do you have some sort of a listserv where you're talking to other clergy? Yeah, actually, the, 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 I'm a, a rabbi in a denomination in uh, Jewish life, the Reform Movement, and uh, Reform Judaism has a rabbinic body uh, called the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And so the rabbis, all of the Reform Movement, um, are a part of that, that body. Um, there is a Facebook, a closed uh, membership-only Facebook group where we're able to tap into each other. For, and this has been going on for many, many years, but it's been especially valuable um, during the pandemic as folks are saying, okay, well, how are you making bar mitzvahs happen during this crazy period of time? Are you able to do them inside, outdoors? How have you guaranteed they've been safe? What have you done to uh, include additional people who can't be present? And I think we're, we're gaining a lot of know-how from other people's experimentation. How about with other clergy? Um, that also, you know, the reality is a big part of most clergy people's uh, uh, personal friendship life is other clergy people, um, and oftentimes of other faiths. Now, the reality is we live a kind of unique life. Um, it's it's a profession, it's a job, but it also is very much a life. And the people who really get it best are other people who are walking that same path. And so all of us tend to have, if you're a rabbi, you tend to have pastors and priests and ministers and imams who are friends of yours and vice versa. And yeah, we've definitely leaned on each other for uh, a lot of wisdom about uh, how uh, you know uh, people are approaching the unique challenges of this moment. Yeah. When I interviewed you for the book, which uh, anybody who doesn't know, Rabbi Chasen's chapter is on the website. He graciously allowed me to go ahead and put that there. I interviewed you right after the sh Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. And the first thing, 
because it's me, I said to you, was, uh, it must suck being a rabbi right now. And you said, no, not at all. This is you know, why you became a rabbi. But when you were young, it was a crossroads. You were a successful musician and you'd always felt a calling, but you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I was sort of headed down two separate roads when I was in college. I was, it was the first time that I'd ever really thought about becoming a rabbi before. And it was also a time where I started to take my uh, musical background pretty seriously. I started doing a lot of, first I had a, a band that got to be pretty popular in my college town. So we were pretty busy performing. My band and I uh, traveled, uh, since I went to college in Ohio, the closest of the major music centers that uh, collegians could get to with reasonable expense was Nashville. Even though we weren't writing and recording country music, that was uh, a lot more accessible to us than LA and New York. And so we uh, would uh, throw all the gear into a van and drive down uh, after school was over uh, down uh, to Nashville to do demo recordings of, uh, of original works. And uh, so I started getting pretty serious in the middle of college about both of these roads. And I met with the admissions dean of the Hebrew Union College, the seminary I ended up attending many years later. And he gave me great advice, advice that really changed my life for the better in far too many ways to count. He said, you know, it sounds like you kind of want to be two people. And while I think you'd be a terrific rabbi, I'm not going to push you to just because I think you've got on paper, it looks like you've got what it takes to be a successful rabbi. I'm not gonna say, oh, well, here's an application, please fill it out. In fact, it sounds to me like this road uh, in music that you wish to travel, it's probably gonna be a lot harder for you to ever get a chance to do that if you go to the rabbinic road first. It'll take you a minimum of five years just to get through rabbinical school. And then who knows, five, 10 years to start to do the work you really most wanted to do. Uh, by going to rabbinical school, you might never get the chance to be that other person that's uh, rattling around inside you. But if you go down the musical road first, you might get a chance to be both people. And that is exactly how my life played out. I spent six years writing music for TV and film and editing musical scores. I worked on what is now uh, the Sony uh, Pictures lot. It was when I first caught on there, it was Laura Martella Pictures. And then uh, Warner took over Lorimar and Warner and Columbia traded lots and I stayed in the post-production music department there and I think the last year I was there was uh, Sony's first year of uh, occupancy of that lot and uh, I had an incredible run doing that work, loved it, I wouldn't give those years back for anything, uh, but also missed a lot of uh, the opportunities that the, the rabbinate has provided for me. And the music's been a big part of my rabbinic life, as you certainly know. And yes. a lot of others have experienced just through the music that I've written and recorded for the Jewish world, which now pops up in, in faith communities all over uh, all over the country and, and congregations around the world. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I mean, my brother has heard your music in New York at the synagogue, um, which he found when you were there with my son on one of the trips back when back when we did things like that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in a synagogue in Midtown Manhattan that he didn't even know about, which is broadcast all over the world. And he said, that your music, he said, there it is, there's your music. And there you got up on the Bema, which is a stage for anybody who doesn't know. And he had a lot of fun hearing that. So how are you keeping your music alive and that part of you alive now during the pandemic? It's been a good time. Uh, obviously there's been a tremendous amount of inspiration to, for new thinking, which leads to new writing. And uh, I've done some co composing work during this period of time. And also 
uh, above and beyond the, the new writing. I haven't done a lot of recording, uh, at least in terms of serious recording. Um, I have the technical stuff with which to do it, but I haven't had a whole lot of time because the rabbinic work has uh, demanded a, just a tremendous amount of attention. And what I'm finding, and I imagine um, a lot of your listeners are discovering this in their own uh, professional circles, um, on a lot of levels, we're doing the same things that we were doing before. They just take longer to do. It just takes more time uh, when you can't just pop your head into somebody else's office and hammer out what the plan is, you have to do everything electronically. It just ends up expanding the amount of time it takes to accomplish certain things that even would, you know, might be pretty simple, but they just take more time. And so when you start to make that exponential for all the different tasks, there's a little bit less bandwidth for me to be doing the recording work I would probably have wanted to do during this year. But I have done some composing and uh, for certain the music has been a huge part of uh, how I've tried to create community for uh, our congregational community. The uh, above and beyond what we do in worship, which is almost entirely musical, I actually started on Tuesday evenings. Uh, I do a weekly uh, event called Ken's Campfire. We do it alliteratively. So, uh, so the campfire is spelled with a K. Uh, Ken's Campfire. And it's basically just uh, about 45 minutes every week of me on Zoom singing songs that I love, oftentimes requests from other people. If uh, I have a pretty sharp ear, so if I know how a song goes, I can usually figure out how to play it and sing it. And uh, we just bring together a bunch of faces on screen uh, who are enjoying creating community with one another, oftentimes just sharing stories and each other's presence. And the music is a backdrop for that. And it's a mixture of uh, songs from religious life that we love, but also secular music that is just uh, fun to sing together. Yeah, Scott loves that. I, I get on as often as I can, but he, that that's actually his favorite thing that is being done since a pandemic. Good time. And so somebody going through a hard time right now, you know, really just there's plenty of people just having a general malaise. What would you tell them? Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of that. Obviously. I mean, I'm sure you're telling people <laughs> something. Sure. Right? I find myself often in that situation, obviously, and people rightly turn to their rabbi when they're struggling with that type of emotional challenge and they're looking for some sort of light or direction. And yeah, you know, I, I often like to help people reference back to another time of darkness in their life. What was a time when uh, there was no pandemic, but there was something else you were going through uh, that felt like it was just this long tunnel or maybe worse than a tunnel, it was a hole and you were in it, and all you could see was the darkness. There wasn't even a, a faint hint of the light, and yet here you are on the other side of it. That's a story you now re recount as having lived through and beyond, and being able to identify the finitude of such an experience, the idea that when I was in it, especially at its beginning, as I was plummeting down into the hole, um, I felt like, oh my gosh, it, it's nothing but downward. In fact, does it even have a bottom? Uh, I just feel like I'm in the dark and I'm always going to be there, except you weren't. There was, there was in fact a bottom or perhaps there was no bottom. There was just an opportunity for you to grab onto the side of the wall and find a handhold and begin climbing your way back up. But whatever it is, those experiences that we've had, and sometimes you have to go back a long time in your life to really remember one where it felt that way and you found your way out. Some people can do it in their adult lives. Other people remember it from their middle school days when it just felt like they were nobody and uh, there was never gonna be a tomorrow for them. But whatever it is, we all have experience with finding our way back to the light. And you know, the way the planets work is not a coincidence. You know, what I have to imagine 
when uh, the earliest creatures first experienced darkness, they wondered if the light was ever going to return. Uh, and there's a reason why most religious traditions have all kinds of prayers of gratitude for the return of light. There's all kinds of prayers in Judaism um, about uh, the return of the morning, about the return of my breath and my soul to me. The idea being that I head into the night and in, in the darkness, both real and metaphorical, we don't know whether light comes back. We, we know intellectually that the planets rotate and that the sun will rise. And yet, as I head into the darkness, usually the real dark tends to bring out people's metaphorical darkness as well. And there's a reason why we're in that, uh, in religious tradition, we're in that constant cycle of acknowledging darkness and blessing the return of light. And um, whatever muscle memory we have developed from having done that before is exactly what we need to recognize that light is gonna follow this darkness too. So what do you do to stay in the light? Do you have a daily practice? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a number of things I do. First of all, the music is a huge part for me of creating it. I, often, I, I will usually leave, now I'm mostly working at home. I do a little bit of work at the synagogue, but mostly I'm, I'm in an office in my house. And in both places, I have a guitar out next to my workspace all the time. So that every now and then um, I'm just getting screened out and I'll turn away, grab a guitar and and even if it's just to kind of noodle around on it for a while, I can find that it has a regulating impact on me. It just gets me breathing better again. Um, exercise is another part of it. It's harder, uh, I think, sometimes to find the time when you're feeling overburdened, and yet that is when it becomes all the more important. I'm a runner for fitness, and so I'm at least getting a couple of runs in per week. And I'm experimenting every now and then with not having music or podcast or anything, just having silence during that time and watching how my consciousness produces answers to questions maybe that I've been struggling with all the time. But once I turn it off and just allow uh, the creative juices to flow without pushing so hard, sometimes uh, ideas, fresh ideas come and answers to questions that have been vexing for a long time. And then lastly, I'll add meditation, which has been a growing practice for me. We've done, uh, you and me, Lauren, uh, as part of groups in the synagogue, have engaged in spirituality and mindfulness med uh, meditation and whatnot. Yeah, I've uh, been attempting to grow in that sphere as well. And there are definitely times where um, even if I can't meditate for as long as I ordinarily would, the, the practice of doing it, just being engaged in practice makes it more efficient to where five or 10 minutes, just really noticing your breath and feeling your breath and acknowledging your breath as your source of life, as opposed to this thing that, I mean, right now in the pandemic, you know, breath is the metaphor for how we know that we're dying. I mean, you think about it, you've got this awful virus and what does it do? It leaves you breathless. So all the more reason for us on the, the, the sunny side of that coin to acknowledge breath as the power of our lives. And, you know, something that we take for granted, we do it all the time involuntarily. And then uh, when you stop, whatever it is that's got you in too much drama and you just focus on your breath, uh, there, it's incredibly redeeming to recognize, you know what, in and out of me all the time comes this life force uh, that I pay no attention to, that I never say thank you for, or I don't say thank you for enough. I'm going to, in this moment, be grateful for the gift of life, which is my breath coming in and out of me. And I'll add one little nugget, a teaching from the Jewish tradition about this, which I probably have shared with you before, but certainly not with your audience. The Hebrew word uh, for breath in the Jewish tradition uh, is uh, nishima or nishama. And it's the same Hebrew word for our souls. The idea being that our breath 
is actually the content. That's where you feel your soul going in and out, pulsating, doing its work. And so uh, it's a big deal, our breath, uh, something that uh, unless you're paying attention, it's just going on without uh, any real gratitude. Uh, we need to make room for gratitude. Oh, I love that. And I signed up for the four-month practice. Oh, great. And uh, so today was my fourth day, uh, first thing in the morning, and I've committed for the first week at least to do 10 minutes in the morning. Of, and I'm just, that was my personal, everybody. I mean, anyway, so I'm doing it. I've been doing 10 minutes every morning, first thing, very so first. Yeah. Although I have to feed my dogs or they kind of, uh, if they I don't- object strenuously. <laughs> they can tell I woke up and they kind of take it. Anyway, I, I have to feed the dogs before I, like, I can't, I, I was like, uh, yeah, they're going to pee all over the house. I mean, I just like, if I don't take, I have to like take care of them first. They just kind of, you know, but anyway, I'm like, I, I'm committed to this, you know, I mean, I'll always meditate or I I've given myself and learned to be gentle with myself during this pandemic because forget the 30 or 60 minute, I'll start meditating and I'll open my eyes and go, what? It's only been three minutes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, but I'm very, I'm like, I feel really good that I've committed to 10 because that, that feels that itself, just, just being kind with yourself is a yeah. huge practice in and of itself. I mean, when you recognize that you are getting down on yourself, when you're being terribly self-judgmental, having some sort of mechanism for returning to the recognition that we tend to do that tend to be uh, you know, our own fiercest critics. And oftentimes not even out loud, we just kind of allow ourselves to self-torture. Uh, and you know, being aware of the need for being, you know, think about the people that count on you the most for being a nice person. And they're just really grateful for the fact that you give them a smile or a hug or a thoughtful email or a call every now and then to say that I'm thinking of you or I noticed you look tired or feel like you might be stressed, whatever it may be. Think about, it, could you could you be that kind to yourself? Could you be that same person to yourself? It's uh, we usually don't uh, do a lot of thought uh, about that kind of thing, but this is certainly a moment when it's demanded. Yeah, it it definitely is. Do you have a dark period of your life that you think about and you think, oh, how did I overcome that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, look, I've been pretty blessed if I'm being really honest. I mean, I grew up in a loving home uh, in a suburban Midwestern town. Uh, my parents believed in me and taught me to believe in myself. I had an extraordinary experience in college, just loved being a collegian and loved the learning and met mentors who really changed my life and be, retained an important place in my life all the way to now. I have a fabulous wife and three terrific kids and uh, we've been married for 26 years and, uh, you know, my professional life. I mean, I serve in a congregation that I love and that has been really loving toward me. You know, I, my, my story is not filled with a lot of darkness. I've been pretty, pretty blessed. And even when I was trying to catch on in the entertainment business, I had a short period, maybe about a year where I really was, you know, uh, living in a pretty seedy part of town because it's all I could afford. And there were a lot of days where breakfast and lunch were kind of expensive. So we just did dinner. Uh, but um, <laughs> Even then, you know, I, I look back on that time and uh, there were there were blessings that I discovered in those moments that were kind of unique. I remember feeling very unbounded. I remember spending a lot of time down at the beach. I was new in California and because I wasn't working, uh, I didn't have a lot of money coming in, but I had a lot of time to kind of take advantage of the natural wonders of being a Californian for the first time in my life. So yeah, you know, I, I 
have been pretty blessed that I haven't had any really deep, deep darkness. But I will say this, you know, on that more micro level where something changes in your workplace or something changes in your family life and it's a pretty difficult thing to adjust to, family member gets a difficult diagnosis and everybody has to adjust to the change, dear friend passes away or takes their own life and you really are uh, challenged deeply about trying to figure out, you know, how to station yourself um, within your own life. I've had those moments. Of course, we all have those moments and they happen again and again. And there have been times that they've, uh, they've been persistent. They've, you know, really managed to drive me down into a persistent place for, you know, a period of weeks or months of really being pretty self-doubting and dark. And, and yeah, you know, I, I've tried to rely upon that same uh, muscle memory that I was describing earlier, you know, in those moments, what I usually try to do is, is identify a period of time whereby part of my kindness to myself in that moment is saying, I'm going to give myself a, a period whereby it's okay to suffer with this. I'm not going to say, why am I you know, wallowing in self-pity and feeling dark all the time? You know, sometimes you need to be able to, you know, be at one with that darkness for some period of time in order to say, I've, I've named it, I've lived with it, I've been inside it, as opposed to trying to deny it. I'm not a big fan of saying, you know, it's, I'm supposed to be sunny all the time. Uh, we're not. That's not a natural way of being. And there are things that are going to, uh, you know, cause us to descend into darkness. And uh, I have usually tried to say, you know, what's an appropriate amount of time that I need to grieve whatever pain has caused this darkness? And sometimes it's longer than others, right? But uh, when you think about what advice would I give to somebody else saying, you know, you need to be with this pain for some period of time, actually just sit with it and be with it and allow it to run through you. Uh, otherwise you never get to the other side of it. And I was almost kind of create an artificial deadline like that for myself and say, you know, um, I'm gonna let myself have a month where I am sitting with this and being with this and allowing it to maybe feel like it's on top of me and then after that, I'm going to uh, kind of establish a different discipline where I'm going to put myself on top of it again. I'm not going to suppress it. I'm not going to say that it goes away, but I'm also not going to allow it to occupy my life or dominate my life. That's good. I, I, I like that kind of delineated <laughs> periods. Yeah. That, that actually brings to mind, I interviewed someone who was... And I had never really thought of this before, but you clearly have, because he was talking about how basically he was talking to female listeners to remember guys don't have the same outlet as women for talking about things going on. And that, and he was saying it in reference to single men that women have so many moms have this group and that group, or we have book clubs or we have this and we have that. And he was saying it more with when guys are dating, he said, this is why they want to marry you on the second date. <laughs> but that they don't really talk about what's going on and they hold it in. And I know you created some men's groups yeah. and, and stuff because of that. Absolutely. And yeah. So yeah, no, I'll talk about it. The, the, we actually have two different men's groups, specifically men's only groups at the synagogue. And the, the first one is actually in some ways, the more interesting story on this front, just because it's a group of senior men who tend to be have an even harder time, you know, just trusting and building those types of relationships. It was very early in my time at the temple. It was maybe in my first or second year. So I'm going back a long time. And a leader, a congregational leader, a senior at that time came to me 
and said, what if we were to try to reach out to some men and create the conditions where there'd be some study and some learning, but really it was less about how much we would learn with one another and more about creating the conditions for us to um, really relate with one another. And so we, uh, we did that. And the initial model of the group was that the different men, because they were seniors and had mostly lived through their professional lives, they all had something to teach, right? You know, we all, they, they all had worked in different professions, had all different types of expertises, had other types of hobbies and interests where they had things to share with others. And so they would all kind of take a turn uh, as the content, if you will, for one of the gatherings. They would gather once a month. And then one of these guys, out of kind of in the middle of no, out of nowhere, sent an email that was entitled a different kind of email. Uh, and it laid out that he had just gotten a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and that his physician felt that it was fairly far developed and that he likely didn't have more than three or at the outside six months to live. And he communicated this to the other men in the group via this email that he sent to everybody at once. And of course it was flummoxing for most people. It was fairly early in the development of the group. And it was just an incredibly powerful thing to share with a group of other men, especially other men of similar age who might be really freaked out by the prospect of, oh my God, this could be me. And instead he, he, the, the message was loaded with gratitude. He said, look, I, you know, would I have wanted to have more time? Sure, but I've had an incredibly blessed life. Uh, I had the opportunity in one of the past sessions to, to teach you guys some stuff that I learned um, along the way. And I want to live real consciously as best as I can during the home stretch of, of my living days inside this body. And the men just gravitated so powerfully to this moment. And we ended up doing a gathering on a Sabbath morning in his living room. We had a circle of all the other men and I led a very sort of slimmed down service because it really wasn't about getting together and praying the full traditional Shabbat morning service. We did have a service, but most of all, it was just an opportunity for these guys to be together with that heavy piece of knowledge, weight, the weight of that in the room. But instead, just speaking from the heart, saying things to this man that they wanted to make sure he heard before it was too late. Uh, all of them, uh, you could only imagine what this did for the bond between the men that he left behind after he died. And even the experience of his dying and their grieving him was an unbelievable galvanizing moment. And those guys are still meeting once a month, 15 years after he's gone. And uh, if anything, the group has become even more richly uh, connected to one another. It's quite an inspiring story. And it's men really sharing their lives with each other. And you're right, I think it does come more naturally to women to kind of put themselves out there. I mean, again, every person is an individual. There are women for whom it's not true and men for whom it is true. Yeah. But more often than not, you're right. Those types of things tend to pop up more naturally and easily more effortlessly for women than they do for men, which is why we kind of go out of our way to create those types of gatherings for men, because they won't, they won't often do it for themselves. They'll need a synagogue or a church to be the vehicle for creating the, the circumstance, and then maybe they're willing to kind of throw in. And then do you open up also, or are you just the leader? Yeah, it's an interesting part. You know, it's, that's the challenge. It's, it, the, the reality is I consider myself friends with so many members of our, of our congregation. I've been here for 18 years and, and uh, you know, there's obviously 
for those 18 years, the, the, who do I spend the most of my time with? Who have I invested the most of my life in? It's all the people from the synagogue. Um, and yet I also recognize that on some level, they don't necessarily need me exclusively to be a friend the way they need their other friends to be friends. There comes a time where they need me to be their rabbi. And so there isn't, there's a, there's a threading of a needle there. I feel like I share a lot of my life and there are definitely times where we're doing that type of exchange and there's a story that I think is important or appropriate for me to raise for them. But I also don't want to cross any lines by being so forthcoming with my personal stories that it's either a violation of the privacy of my loved ones or that it creates this feeling of, oh my God, like is the rabbi sort of therapizing himself with all of us? There's, I think there is that d desire for me to be interpersonal and connected and uh, forthcoming, and yet also to, to maintain a certain nugget of professional distance so that I can be the rabbi when they need to call upon me in those sorts of professional functions. Okay. I want to read my favorite thing that you told me when I interviewed you last time, since I asked you about, I don't even remember the question, but I asked you about when that awful, really awful tragedy occurs. Yeah. what happens and uh what then and what you said was then you are not alone we've got you you're never going to heal you're always going to learn how to walk around with that broken part and we will walk with you you will not have to walk alone ever that's what community is yeah it's uh why do i believe that that it's uh it's nice to hear those words back just because that is more than anything else that de that defines my professional life right now. I mean, I think everything we do is a doorway to that, whether it's prayer. I mean, not everybody's into prayer. You know, there are plenty of people who join a synagogue and are not into prayer or don't believe in God. And that may seem somehow antithetical, but the point of fact is all kinds of folks, at the end of the day, we're in the community making business and there are folks will choose their own appropriate portal of entry into that. And for some folks, it's the intellectual part. They like studying. For others, they're spiritual and they like praying. Or others, they're into meditative practice and they'll do that part with us. For others, they come to us to be a part of building a better world. And so the social justice work that we do is their point of connection. For others, it's strictly social. They want to get together and know that there's a community that is uh, connected to one another for no utilitarian purpose other than being connected to one another. In those instances, uh, folks are using the synagogue as a vehicle for a social connection. Uh, at the end of the day, I think everything we do ultimately feeds that one purpose. And I'll say this, in the decision-making rooms in our synagogue, whether it's uh, in the board of trustees or whether it's our senior staff making programmatic decisions, we often kind of circle back to that. We'll have some program idea and we'll ask the question, is that going to further our ambition to enable people to really be in meaningful connection with one another. Because if it's not, if it's just something cool to show them or you know, an interesting uh, lecture to have them experience, there's all kinds of places to go for that. They don't have to come to us for that. At the end of the day, we wanna spend our time and energy on ensuring that people feel less alone in a world that can be pretty lonely. Yeah, uh, that's why I joined. This is, if for anybody doesn't know, this is my synagogue, this is my rabbi. <laughs> 
<laughs> I became a single mom and someone said, oh, I think you'll want to join this synagogue. And I went there and I had a two and a five-year-old sitting on my lap going, please don't make any noise. Please don't make any noise. And we were in an outside chapel, which to me felt like I was surrounded by the woods, which was so wonderful because I grew up on the East Coast. And it didn't matter if my kids made noise. It was this fabulous, welcoming community. And that was it. I, Rabbi Chasen came out with his guitar and he said, breathe in this wonderful environment. Breathe out the traffic. <laughs> and then he, he said, breathe in. And then you said, whatever. And then just, it, it was just this, I had never been to anything like that in my life. This was not temple that I grew up with. <laughs> Nor that I did. Yeah. And I got bought mitzvah as an adult that I, I mean, this is, this is my community and welcoming. I just wrote a blog about it after what, what a community, how, you know, you're with a community. In fact, I was going to, I think Rabbi Ross wants it. And um, anyway, uh, because it's, there's a sense of ease that you could be yourself. You don't think, I never once think, oh, why did I say that? Or what do they think about me? Or all those awkward, uncomfortable things. So hopefully people get a sense of community wherever they are, no matter what, there's a, there's always some place you can get community. There's just a plethora of things online. You have to put yourself in. That's my wish for all of you who are listening is, uh, you know, sometimes we lament feeling isolated, but we're also the, the purveyors of our own isolation. You know, sometimes you really have to push yourself to say, you know, Lauren was not the uh, giant synagogue goer. Uh, you know, I'm quite sure when you took that first lark on coming out with uh, your kids when they were young, it was like, gosh, am I really doing the synagogue thing? Is that really how I'm going to go about making community? But you did. You put yourself out there and you allowed that experience, that transcendent moment of, wow, I've never experienced it like this. And I'm nestled against the hillside and I'm feeling it. That doesn't happen unless you decide to insert yourself. And so for uh, all of you, uh, the, the best advice I can give is open your heart to being less alone. Take a chance on being less alone. Uh, take a swing at something you might not ordinarily be willing to try that is uh, about community for its own sake. It's not uh, necessarily about your professional advancement or about your kids' welfare. Or, there's all kinds of con communities we connect to that have their own utilitarian purpose, but the soul ultimately counts upon being nourished by community for its own sake, the idea that I matter. And it's not because I'm a lawyer or because I'm a doctor or because I'm a, a professional or an executive or because I'm a dad or because uh, I am a Jew. It's because um, I have a soul and there are other souls that are ready to receive me and for me to receive them. Um, it takes some chance taking on your part to make it happen. But when it, when it does, you really do discover what it is to be unalone. It's so true. I, I heard a long time ago that God doesn't drive parked cars. I can't sit in a corner hoping to meet someone or to be a part of something that I have to take an action. That's a great way to put it. There's a, I love, there's a famous story that uh, talks about the person who's uh, uh, drowning in the water and uh, is uh, praying for God to rescue him. And uh, people drive by in boats and offer a chance to get on the boat and somebody comes by and offers pontoons that they can cross across to safety and whatnot. And they're like, no, I've been praying to God to rescue me. And of course they drown and afterward they're in heaven and they're asked, uh, you know, they said, I was waiting for God to rescue me. They're like God says, 
I sent you boats and pontoons and all these uh, mechanisms for rescue. You passed on all of them. Really, that is how we experience God in the world. It is through the encounter with each other. Yeah, and I love that. Thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. This was so much fun. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Rabbi Chasen's messages of self-care, encouragement, and compassion. We definitely need those a lot right now for ourselves. And as the rabbi reminds us, then we can give that to others. Be sure to tune in next week when author, humanitarian, and Reiki master and healer April Fender joins us, helping you with all forms of healing and you'll get to leave feeling enlightened and instantly inspired by her incredible energy and wisdom all the way from Maui. I wish everyone a very good and hopefully peaceful week ahead as we welcome in the new administration. Don't forget we are giving away a fun gift bag of my favorite journal, candle, and crystals. All you have to do is share your email with us on our website and we'll send you the link to enter. Just go to 52weeksofhope.com and put your email in we have one more gift bag to give away. So please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a positive review and send us feedback on our website, 52weeksofhope.com. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.